This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Searching, 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 trying to figure out if it is indeed true, because if so, I live for nights like this. Trying to figure out whether Devin Levi is starting for the Buffalo Sabres tonight. As they face off against the Florida Panthers, one of 11 games on the board this evening in what should be a rather chaotic and fun Tuesday night around the NHL. The reason I bring this one up is the Buffalo Sabres are kind of in this thing now. Buffalo Sabres once thought for dead in the Eastern Conference race, not so fast. All of a sudden, listen, if the uh, if the Buffalo Sabres beat the Florida Panthers tonight, well, first of all, it's the biggest game of the season for the Buffalo Sabres. And we'll get to that in a second. You know, if they can beat the Florida Panthers tonight, look out, do we ever have a race? Maybe it's not just the Florida Panthers and the Pittsburgh Penguins and the Islanders vying for something here, but all of a sudden, the lead... I mean, right now, the Buffalo Sabres are at 81 points. They have two games in hand against the Florida Panthers and the Pittsburgh Penguins, three games in hand over the New York Islanders, and you can make the argument they kind of control their fate here. And who doesn't love a great comeback story like this? Who doesn't love the late sprints at the end of the race right to the finish line? Game 82 it took, but we got there. And it seems as if when you look at the skate yesterday... With Comrie and Lukanen sharing a net. Is this a game for Devin Levi? The star in Division One Played one game in the NHL. A game where the New York Rangers were sleepy for two periods and then woke up for the third. The biggest game of the Buffalo Sabres season. And it looks as if Devin Levi is getting the start. Now, this may all change here, but it seems as if this is trending this direction. Matt Marchese, uh, our producer here, if you see, as I'm on the show here and talking to people and making various hockey sounds, if you see information to the otherwise, let me know. But I'm going. I'm of the belief that tonight that Devin Levi is getting the start for the Buffalo Sabres, and it's the first game on the board, and I will be going absolutely nowhere. I am watching every single minute of this because moments like this are like if you look at, you know, the internal politics of a team and where decisions get made, a lot of it is around the goaltender. Whose guy are you? Right? Ukapekalukanen was drafted by another regime, right? That's a uh, that's a that's a bodderal decision. He was his guy. Now, Eric Comrie, who got the two-year deal as a free agent in the offseason, I would imagine that would be, as much as it is, you know, Kevin Adams as the general manager, it sounds very much like and felt very much like at the time, and I've been, no one's ever been able to convince me otherwise, that that one is an analytics lead through the Buffalo Sabres. Now, Kevin Adams and Don Granado, but more specifically Kevin Adams, can make the argument that this is the GM's goalie, right? This was the Reinhardt deal. This was the big piece. This was the guy they got, you know, out of college when his season was done. This is, you know, they cleared the path. Eric Portillo gets sent to the Los Angeles Kings, clearing the pathway. There is room here now for Devin Levi. Does he start and stay in the NHL? And in the biggest game of the season for the Buffalo Sabres, where they can do themselves a whole ton of good and really jump into this race in a significant way, are they handing the reins to someone with one game experience? Tonight's matchup, the Buffalo Sabres and the Florida Panthers, is juicy for a lot of reasons. Um, Here's a question I have for you. 
Here's a question that I will ask everybody. Up until last night, how much time did you spend thinking about Pavel Dorofiev of the Vegas Golden Knights? Hands up. Hands up. Quick look around the room. Nobody. He's good. <laughs> we always talk about one door closing and another door opening. Uh, Chandler Stevenson, not that I'm going to say this is a Wally Pitt moment, um, but Chandler, Chandler Stevenson, a little ill yesterday. He doesn't play. Uh, Dorofiev steps in. Two goals as the uh, the Vegas Golden Knights face off against the Minnesota Wild, and the Vegas Golden Knights take care of the uh, Minnesota Wild four to three. That one in a shootout along the way. By the way, um, no Karel Kaprizov, no problem. Matthew Boldy is pistol hot right now. Uh, Thirty goals on the season for Matthew Boldy, and the good news for the Minnesota Wild is Karel Kaprizov. Is he going to be available for Game eighty three? Sounds like it. He's skating, maybe, crossing your fingers. Hope he can get there. Anyway, big win last night by the Vegas Golden Knife and Dorofiev with, uh, with two goals. Um, outstanding. Uh, just an outstanding performance uh, by that young man. Uh, the Nashville Predators, that is a tough one. They lose 5-1 to one to the Dallas Stars. In the process, Jason Robertson uh, picks up four points. He is now at 101. He is the first player since the North, since the Stars moved from Minnesota, where they were the North Stars, to Dallas. First player to get to 100 points. Congratulations to Jason Robertson. And he is still not done. And the road gets that much tougher for the Nashville Predators. Stars, by the way, clinching. I should have mentioned that. Uh, Stars clinch. Minnesota Wild clinch by picking up the point yesterday against the, uh, the Vegas Golden Knights. So they're both clinched, and, and they've punched their ticket as well. Elliot Friedman, by the way, who normally kicks off the show, is going to kick off hour two. He's at Scotiabank Arena right now um, in advance of the Toronto Maple Leafs and the Columbus Blue Jackets, where one of the big stories is Jet Greaves will make his NHL debut. Uh, Netminder played his junior with the Barry Colts. Um, just a wonderful story uh, picked up by the Columbus Blue Jackets. Um, Manny Legacy, Ian Clark, really did a, a tremendous amount of work. Yesterday I went on a lot about goalie coaches and how I think that uh, some of them belong in the Hockey Hall of Fame, and there's some of the more you know under-acknowledged people in the game. Maybe scouts would be number one, but number two is probably goalie coaches. Um, did a tremendous job with Jed Greaves. He'll get the start tonight for the Columbus Blue Jackets, and oh, i got to grab this text. As a buddy of mine texted me about five, ten minutes ago because we've seen this movie before. Uh, let me grab it here. Uh, Jet Greaves will make 52 saves and beat the Leafs. You watch. For some teams, you would get that text and you would laugh. I don't think any Maple Leafs fan getting that text would laugh. They'd say, yeah, we can see that because we've seen that movie before. Uh, also last night, the Arizona Coyotes continued to act like the Arizona Coyotes that we thought they were going to be. Now, this is a team that still plays tough, but this is a team that... like. We've talked about tanking, right? Gary Bettman talked a lot about tanking this year, and teams don't tank because we have a lottery. Okay, not sure I'm picking up what you're putting down, but I get what you're trying to say, and I get how you're trying to you know, lead that conversation. Um, players don't tank. Coaches don't tank. But management can construct a roster that by the end of the season, you might just be coasting on fumes. And it seems as if um, the Arizona Coyotes have arrived there. Eight to one, they lose to the Seattle Kraken, and there's Jared McCann with two more goals. Now, I know general managers always hate this. They hate what I'm about to do probably as much as they hate 
as they hate when people like me redo the draft. Oh, let's go back and look at the 2012 draft and redo it and point out all the mistakes. I get it. Hindsight is 2020. Um, but Jared McCann uh, was left exposed by the uh, by the Toronto Maple Leafs, uh, and he's you know of course since signed the five times five contract with Seattle, which looks like an absolute bargain. Now McCann has uh, last night goals thirty six and thirty seven, looks like a total bargain. Um, you know Toronto was protecting certain players, um, and they left Jared McCann exposed, um, and he's very much turning into how shall we say Seattle's Jonathan Marchessault who the Florida Panthers famously left unprotected. You know, part of the deal was they had to take Riley Smith and his contract, but still uh, leaving Marcia so unprotected so they could uh, protect players like Alex Petrovic. Ooh, that's a tough one, despite the fact that everybody in the analytics community was saying, what are you doing? Nonetheless, uh, Kraken win 8-1, to Dallas Stars win 5-1, to and the Vegas Golden Knights. And once again, I know I went on about this yesterday. Vegas wins 4-3 in the shootout. Um, I don't want to say irrelevant because, you know, every win is relevant. But um, just from a, a watchability point of view, like if you if you look at the schedule and you say to yourself, okay, which games am I, like I can't watch 11 tonight. Which games am I going to watch? Um, anytime you see Vegas and Minnesota playing, park it because those are always really, really good games. And yesterday was another installment in this uh, in this great game series between the Vegas Golden Knights and the Minnesota Wild. And uh, we cross our fingers and say to ourselves, maybe, just maybe, we will be rewarded with a playoff series between these two teams maybe as early as this season. And if so, please let Kirill Kaprizov be healthy. Although Matthew Boldy is really doing some damage. He's been outstanding. Uh, 11 games on the board this evening around the uh, around the NHL. And a number of goaltending call-ups as well. Uh, a lot of emergency call-ups. Uh, Vadim Sharenko is called up by the St. Louis Blues. Joe Wall called up by the Toronto Maple Leafs. And I mentioned Jed Greaves called up um, the Cambridge kid. Uh, called up for the Columbus Blue Jackets. Uh, Matty Marchese, our producer, how are you today? I'm good, buddy. So I have a couple of things to uh, to add to your big soliloquy in the beginning there. If you would, if you would bear with. What do you got? So which 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 which, which, uh, which jump in point do you want to use there? By the way, there was oh, there was a okay. lot. I was kind of I was, was kind of lawn sprinklering there. <laughs> no, that's okay. Um, okay, so the first one is since you were just talking about Matthew Boldy, you mentioned him again. Um, do you know where he yeah. ranks in scoring since Kirill Kaprizov got hurt? Like in the NHL? Yeah. Uh, number one. No, he's, I don't know. he's, fir- he's first in goals in that time. <laughs> oh, he is it. Yeah. No surprise. Yeah. He's been, he's been so hot. Is it like, a, yeah. is it like 11 goals in eight games or something like that? Yeah. He's 11. And, ridiculous. He's uh, I don't 11 know. And 10 and he has 15 points yeah. in 10 games. Uh, that would place him ninth tied for ninth in scoring with the likes of awesome. David Posternock, Matthew Kachuk, Tyler Toffoli, Mick is advantage at Austin Matthews, Alexander Barkov. That's pretty good company there. Yeah, that's outstanding company. Here, let me let me just call it up here, so we will all have a the, a frame of reference that we can all work from here. So when he signed that contract extension, okay, and it is sizable, right? It's a seven million dollar deal. I think a lot of people looked at it and said, "That's a lot of money for someone here on the, you know, coming off their entry level deal." You know, you get the you get the bump up essentially from. You know, eight hundred. I think he was making like eight eighty or nine hundred thousand, all the way up to seven million. Uh, enjoy that, 
uh, enjoy that second contract. But much like you know the the minute the, uh, the 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 contract was dry for Jason Robertson and he started playing, you say, "Oof, man, how did Jim Neal get him at that low a number? Maybe we should have given him the ten million that it's believed he originally asked for." Right now, if Matthew Boldy continues like this, and I see no reason why he can't, he's just that elite a player, and that passing play with him and Joel Erickson Eck last night was a thing of beauty. Um, that's going to be a bargain contract for Bill Guerin. Like, again, I'll go back to this thing about the Minnesota Wild. I just love the way Guerin's done this. I just love the way Guerin's constructed a, a team that's both skill and toughness. I just love everything about what Guerin's done here with Minnesota. Big, bold moves with the uh, with the buyouts for Parisian Suter. That's one. And then ever since then, it's been, it's been Guerin really trying to put together what you would figure a Bill Guerin team would look like. And now, again, we cross our fingers and get Kirill Kaprizov in there for game 83. But that's a okay. good stat about Boldy. He's good, man. Yeah. He's good. Okay, so uh, a couple of other things, and these will be quick. Uh, one, it's very ironic that okay. Devin Levi may be starting tonight against the team that traded him, considering that Alex Lyons yes. looks like he's going in the other end for the Panthers and their goaltending <laughs> issues that if, they've had. <laughs> if, 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 if I told you the beginning of the year that on Tuesday, April the 4th, there is going to be a game between the Florida Panthers and the Buffalo Sabres, and it might just, you know, lead into, you know, a, a big part of the conversation of who makes it into the postseason, and your goaltenders are going to be Alex Lyon and Devin Levi. Like, would they have taken me off the air that day? Would they have let me finish the week? Like, at what point would Dan Toman, our program director, step in and say, you know what, maybe you need a little nap, Jeffrey. Maybe it's time to have a little bit of a lie down. They might let you finish the show. That's probably about it. Maybe, maybe we got you now to, to step in. So that might have been yeah. that might be your Wally Pip moment. He's okay, talking about the- Alex Lyon and Devin <laughs> Levi, boss. I don't know about this. Let's get the white jacket out for him. He's been talking about hockey way too long. I think he yeah. drinks too. Anyway, <laughs> he drinks coffee. Um, and the last, the last <laughs> thing uh, that'll be that Levi Marilinen, third round pick for the Senators, is likely to make his first career start tonight. He would be the seventh awesome. goaltender to start a game for the Ottawa Senators <laughs> this season. Who holds the record? Is it L.A.? Remember when they had, like, I mean, everyone down to Yukata Fukufuji going down? Does L.A. hold the record for most goaltenders used in a season? I'm checking right now. I know um, that as, as soon as I say that, I'm, you're, you're scurrying off to the Internet um, to find that answer. I want to say that it's the Los Angeles Kings a few seasons ago when they got, they got down to, like, I, I, think they were, I think they had Rogi Vashon on speed dial. I think they're going to call, uh, call Rogi Chan and see if he could step in. Hey, you still got your old pads? Still got that old great mask from the Canada Cup 76. (laughs) It looks like the flyer set the record uh, a few years ago. It looks like eight is the record. Jeez. The king, so the pre, the, so the previous record was seven. Uh, that 2007 2008 Kings team, uh, 0203 Blues, 8990 Nordiques. Uh, and our pal Mike McKenna was one of the goalies. That uh, made an nice. appearance, as well as how about this? Alex Lyon was another one that Alex made Lyon. an appearance. There you go. That's great. Everything comes well. Full listen, I'm looking forward to this one. I know it's a beautiful thing. We tie a ribbon around it too. Uh, I'm looking forward to this one. This one is is just so juicy um, for a number of like I just love the okay because f- first of all, <clears throat> when you look at this decision, if this is Levi, I always try to put myself in the other goalies' skates. 
So if you're Eric Comrie, what's the message? If you're Uka Pekalukanen, what's the message? Maybe moreover, if you're the agents for these two goaltenders, what's the message? Get me out of I here. don't That's know. Well, I don't know. Like It's the most important game of the year, and the guy you signed to the two-year contract in the offseason, I believe Buffalo might have been the only team in the NHL that offered Comrie the second year. I think there are other teams that were in. I think Toronto might have been one of them. Um, but Buffalo is the only one that uh, offered a second year. Um, people that follow the underlying numbers for players of every single position always, you know, would talk about Comrie um, and how he's undervalued and someone should take a quote-unquote gamble on him. Now, I know there's been injury woes this year and hospital bracelet has been an issue. Um, and Lukadin has been the guy waiting in the wings for a long time. I think the plan was to him for him to have one more solid year this year in Rochester and then get the call up. But then when Comrie got injured, all of a sudden the battery became Lukanen and Craig Anderson. And as we all know, they've managed Anderson's starts all season long. And Lukanen ended up getting a really heavy workload and kind of showed that he was ready and passed the Rochester experience and ready to be a full-time NHLer. And then here comes this guy from Northeastern who <laughs> comes in and knocks everything off the table. And I always think of the internal dynamics. And I don't know, even though everybody will say all the right thing and it's a group decision and we're all on the same page here. Maddie, I was born at night, but I wasn't last born night. last night. <laughs> Just wasn't born last night, pal. So this one, this one's a juicy one. What else are we okay. doing today? Let's do some mailbag stuff. We're, honestly, we might have to push this into tomorrow because um, you and I have spoken for probably too long. But um, okay, on. Something... Can, can I st- can I start can I start can I start with one? Yeah, yeah. So I got this sure. one here from uh, <laughs> uh, I, I, I suppose. So I'm asking permission uh, from Colton Davies, who uh, who writes at Daily Faceoff. Yes. Who, uh, DM'd me and said, "I'd love to get your take on Bradley Nadeau, 2023 prospect. He'll be a first rounder. Dominance in the BCHL, back to back hat tricks to start the playoffs." With the Penticton V's, 113 points in 54 games this season, committed to Maine for next year. Not only is he committed to Maine, uh, but his brother plays on Penticton as well, um, and he's committed to Maine. And yes, the obvious, um, there was one other very famous player who made the uh, the trip from Penticton to Maine who did quite well for himself, uh, now finds himself in the Hockey Hall of Fame. That person is, of course, Paul Correa. Not that I'm saying he's going to turn into Paul Correa. All I'm saying is... There's the symmetry. That team is spectacular, by the way. So Fred Harbinson coaches that team. Um, they have both Nadeau brothers. Um, they also have Mike Richter's son, Scott Niedermeyer's son, Joe Neuendijk's son, Wade Arnett's son <laughs> on that team. It's like, a, uh, you know, normally when you play like a father-son game at that level, the sons are going to win. Like, I'm not sure like what level it is where the, where the sons really start to take over in the father-son's game. But you can be rest assured that in the father-son's game for the Penticton Vs, it's probably more competitive, Maddie, than most father-son games of uh, uh, players that are in their late teens. Uh, can I? Yeah, I know for sure. Can I? Can I tell you a quick Wade Arnett story? Just about about sure. Wade as a hockey player. Okay, so uh, of course Wade Wade played in the King City Men's League. Did he beat you up? Did he beat you up, Maddie? Come clean, Wade is so nasty with his stick in front of the net. Like the cross checks that I got from Wade Arnett in front of the net. And I was just like, I don't even wear shoulder pads, let alone have pants that fit properly. So those were 
painful yeah. games against Wade. Yes, yes. Hang on, hang on. You didn't wear shoulder pads in junior? No, men's league. Or is this beer league? But men's oh, okay. League, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, don't, I don't wear them now either. No, uh, some people the do. And they're, in men's league. Yeah, yeah. Well, Wade no. does. So. <laughs> Attaboy, Wade. I like Wade Arnott. I like that So family. there we go. So what do you got? That's mine. That's from, from Colton Davies. Yeah, the kid's awesome. He's probably going to go bottom. of. I think bottom of the first round is sort of where he's ticketed to go on uh, Bradley Nadeau. Yeah, so both of those guys won two in scoring, by the way. So uh, mailbag. Um, this one came in go. a few weeks ago, and I thought we needed to get to this because it's right up your alley. So it was titled, How a High Stick in 1885 Helped Spur Modern Aviation. This one is from, uh, he wanted to be called <laughs> Caps Fan in Denver and Prudence's Dad. So Caps Fan in Denver and Prudence's Dad, here you go. So he starts out like this. Right. Sounds like clickbait, but it's actually kind of true. I'm a huge hockey fan and also read a lot of Wikipedia. Now, Wikipedia, yes, some of it's not true, but here we go. Um, one of the last wiki rabbit holes I went on was aviation. Of course, ended up on the Wright Brothers wiki page. In late 1885 or early 1886, Wilbur was struck in the face by a hockey stick while playing an ice skating game with friends, resulting in the loss of his front teeth. He had been a vig- he had been vigorous and athletic until then, and although his injuries did not appear especially severe, he became withdrawn. He had planned to attend Yale. Instead, he spent the next few years largely housebound. So, and then he responds with, "Dude was supposed to go to Ohio and become a fan, or get out of Ohio yep. and become a fancy Yale person in Connecticut. Going to Yale. But he got high sticked, yeah. decided to stay in Ohio with his brothers, and then they dot 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 gestures wildly. Uh, never seen this brought up before, <laughs> and I know Jeff will love this. Okay, so here becomes the question then." Here becomes the obvious question. Which hockey player then was responsible for air travel? Yeah. Do you know the answer? Nobody will get it. Oliver, Oliver Crook Haw, who at the time was 15 years old. Wilbur Wright would have been 18. He was the kid that delivered the high stick. Oh, that's awesome. Maybe the most most impactful and famous high stick in the history of the world. (laughs) Think about... All the high sticks you've ever seen. Nothing had a greater impact. <laughs> Nothing uh, had a greater impact than a 15-year-old Oliver Crook Haw hitting Wilbur Wright in the face because what it led to was modern aviation. Un- well, I would tell you that some Leaf fans would tell you the Gretzky high stick was way more impactful than that of aviation, but, I mean, I digress. <laughs> so, uh, so uh, yeah. th- th- this is the best part. Um, to provide... Uh, relief <laughs> for the pain of rotting teeth. He was provided with a popular cure of the day: cocaine toothache drops. Oh, uh, we used to see things so clearly back then. Oh, the marvels of <laughs> of, of modern medicine at the time. <laughs> okay, so what's that guy's uh, name again? That's wild. What's that's that a great name? one. Oliver Cro- uh, Oliver Crook Haw H A U G H, the most that's famous the high stick of all time. That's the one that led to, to modern aviation and yeah, air travel. <laughs> I think that's the title of the podcast. The mo- the the most next time you fly, yeah. Next time you fly, please understand. This was all brought to you by a high sticking penalty. Yeah, or maybe it was a non call. Depends if get Karen on a plane. Was waffering. Hmm. Very good. What else we okay. got? That's a good one. I'm glad you went all down right. that road. 
so this one is from Paul in Colorado. Uh, hi, Jeff. I want it. I want your thoughts on the idea of replacing the current regular season overtime and shootout inspired by college football overtime. What if you gave each okay. team a two-minute four-on-three power play to score? If one team scores and the other doesn't, the game is over. If both teams score or both teams okay. do not, you go on to another round. Home team would decide who goes first, and then he puts power kill rules apply question mark and that's the part that i like the most. ah okay okay so i was, I was gonna say if you pull the goal to first of all four on three is about as close to an automatic as you're gonna find in hockey like you see that at the nhl level team takes a penalty in overtime get the hot towels ready um but if the power kill goal is in effect i.e you score and then the game is over uh, or the penalty is over. Um, well, here, okay. So here, here's the thing about it. I mean, I don't mind it, but here's here's the problem. You have to consider why they're doing three on three overtime in the first place, okay? And why they're not doing five on five overtime, and why they're not doing four on four overtime. And you know the reason, Maddie? Why is that? Because I want to get the game over fast. Okay, so this is, you know, whether it's the mainly the Players Association, but also the NHL, you know, is very sensitive and has always has been about the length of games. And they kind of want it in the sweet spot of like 220 to 230. And they don't want games. I mean, every every, every look at what baseball is going through right now. Every sport wants to get their games in a little more economically than they've been in the past. Um, the three-on-three is there, so there's a chance to end this thing quickly. Um, I know some will say, oh, it's just to make sure that it don't, don't, uh, doesn't go to the shootout because they don't like the shootout. No, it's not that they don't like the shootout. They don't like how long it takes. That's the problem here. So whether it's you know uh, fans needing to get home on, on midweek games, whether it's uh, uh, network television time, uh, they don't want these things taking forever. Playoffs is a whole separate conversation. But the reason that the three-on-three is in place and the reason that they went with that right away, right out of the gate, um, was because they want the games over quickly. So as much as I like the idea of, hey, let's swap out power plays, what it doesn't give a wink to is the fact that the three-on-three overtime is there to get this thing over with quickly so the guys can get out, teams can get on the charter and get to the next city. That's the reason they have the three-on-three. So I like the idea. It sounds like fun. Sign me up. But as far as the NHL goes, non-starter. Because the goal of three-on-three is just get the game over as early as possible, as quick as possible, and have a rent, have a winner through so, all of so it. What about, so what about going to maybe one-minute power plays instead of two? Does that I like that. I like that for overtime. I like that for overtime. I think it should be. Yeah. I really do. But then again, like this, 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 this gets into a whole other conversation about I think there are some infractions that we see in the rule book that should be one minute. Like not everything should be a two-minute minor. I think there are some that's like, eh, it doesn't rise to two minutes, but I would, I'd be comfortable giving that a one-minute penalty. Yeah. Okay, so here's my, here's my but other that, thing that we, I thought but of. We do, we, do not have time for, we do not have time for that one. No. Here's the other thing I thought of. The strategy would be very interesting in that because – so if you get scored on first – do you pull your goalie to try yep. and go five on three? Because if you get scored on in an empty net, it doesn't matter. You're going to lose anyway. Oh, no, I would. I would. Oh, I know down. you would. At that point, because you love strictly, chaos. It's strictly possess. <laughs> well, no, strictly possession game at that point, right? And you have more chess pieces on the board. Chances are, I mean, first of all, no one's going to be taking low percentage shots. 
it's all going to be work to a high percentage, work to a high percentage, work to a high percentage. Um, but then again, it's hockey. So, you know, off the back of a skate turnover and, you know, you throw the puck down the ice and you could score, then the, the entire thing is over. But I would pull the goalie. I'm sure like when you have a sample size large enough, um, you'd be able to demonstrate that that's the smartest thing to do. Kind of like how teams now have enough information at their fingertips. And that's why, you know, uh, teams ice the puck on a regular basis when they're, when they're holding on to a lead at the end. Right, because how long was that? The the hue and cry was always, "What are they doing? Why are they icing the puck? The faceoff is coming right back down." It's like, yeah, it's a great way to eat up the clock. Yeah, I just killed. And chances five, are six you're seconds. not gonna. Chances are you you're not you're not gonna you're not gonna score within an allotted time. Yeah, like it just that's where we look at. Oh, analytics teaches us nothing. Oh, really? Why do teams ice the puck so much when they're protecting leads? Because of how we understand and measure how the game is played right now, and play things called percentages. Yeah. Kind of like how we run the economy, but no one likes to talk about that. Anyway, um, okay. is that it? That's all we have time for? We have time I, for one uh, more. We, I think we got one quick one. Um, this one is okay. sent in from Hockey Samurai, who is a fantastic follow on Twitter. Um, <sighs> what's so the good. best or a favorite non-NHL hockey barn? Uh, if you want to reach into the past for one that that no longer stands, please do. Cheers, the Hockey Samurai. So from... Um, from my little perch, I'll always have a soft spot in my heart for a couple of rinks in the west end of the city of Toronto. One is Lambton Arena, um, which is where I first started playing, but then I've played the majority of my life, uh, both as a kid and then as a grown-up in various leagues at McCormick Arena. Um, but as far as, you know, rinks that uh, that no longer function, you know what one of the greatest thrills of my hockey life was, Maddie? What's that? Memorial Cup, Quebec City, Colisee. I was there for the final hurrah of the Colisee, the Oshawa Generals, Anthony Sorelli with the overtime goal, uh, beat Leon Dreisaitl and the Kelowna Rockets, and then the Colisee goes dark. The final game of the Colisee, I was there. And what a special place. I went to games there when I was uh, as a kid and, and into my teens as well. I saw Montreal and the Quebec Nordiques play there a couple of times. Uh, it may have been the arena where the smoke was the densest, <laughs> with all due respect to Montreal, because Montreal, you're really good too, as far as being a smoky barn. But there was not a better smoky barn uh, that I was ever in than the Colisee. And that was the thrill of a lifetime, uh, to be there for the final game in the history of the Colisee. That was that was super special for me. You have one? I got a, I got a few. So um, one Memorial Arena in Brampton, uh, where the Brampton Capitals used to play, has the best ice that I've ever mm. skated on, and I played there as a kid growing up. Um, the other mm. one that is absolutely fantastic. I mean, the hometown rinks are always great, but uh, Collingwood, Ontario, uh, Eddie Bush Arena, where the Collingwood the Blues Blues play, that arena is absolutely yeah. fantastic. And then from a uh, a junior perspective uh my favorite rank was one that i actually attended camp at which was uh george vezina arena in shikutami uh still it has the modern seats but it's an old wood barn inside up at the top it's uh it's quite something nice uh galt arena i want to throw into that mix as yes. well and the william allman in stratford those two i'll uh, i'll throw onto that uh, i would love to go to galt arena it looks fantastic of, uh, great old barns I've been a few. I was a few times. Yeah, on, on various various tournaments with uh, with my kids. It's great. I mean, there's obviously like the pictures of Gordy, um, who played there. But it's it's really cool. And how should I say this? It's comfortably uncomfortable. 
mm-hmm. because you understand the era when it was built and you understand that, you know, the, the, the way that they build rinks now where it's, it's built for comfort for both the players and the, uh, the spectators as well. Yeah. That was just all thrown out the window and they were going to do whatever the hell they wanted when they built this rink and it made for, you know, things like uncomfortable dressing rooms where maybe you have to duck, um, and you know, seats that, you know, might not be the most comfortable and awkward ways to get to the rink, et cetera, but it's an old historical barn, man. I'll take uh, I'll take Galtarina any day of the week. I I love that place. Yeah, that's great. Okay, that's it for the mailbag for today. I mean, you can send in more jam show at sportsnet.ca, and maybe we'll do some more tomorrow. Yeah, or if we have time a little bit later on. Oh, why is Kirill Kaprizov trending? Is there good news on the horizon here? Okay, just kidding. Uh, all right, so on that, we'll hit a break. Here's what's coming up on the program. Uh, Elliot Friedman kicks off hour two. Uh, random player of the day, Kevin Curtis from The Athletic. Uh, the Islanders uh, are not quite cooled out yet. That was a pretty bad weekend for the Islanders, dropping games against the Tampa Bay Lightning and the Carolina Hurricanes. Um, they are not out of the woods here at all. We'll talk to Kevin Curtis about them, but joining me next, Thomas Drance uh, from Canucks Talk and The Athletic stops by the, the autopsy on the season, the speculation on the offseason with the Vancouver Canucks. Drancer is up next as the Merrick Show continues across the Sportsnet Radio Network simulcast on Sportsnet 360 and Sportsnet Now. Keep it here. Discussing the biggest stories that matter to Toronto sports fans. The Fan Morning Show with Ailish Forfar and Justin Cuthbert. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. So it's right around that time of year where as teams get eliminated officially... All right, get them up on the table, autopsy time. Uh, up for grabs today, the Vancouver Canucks send out who better than our friend uh, Thomas Trance uh, to help uh, figure out what went wrong and how they plan to change things in the offseason. Drancer, how are you today, pal? Oh, relishing the opportunity to play Undertaker. <laughs> Let's go. Get your get the get the get the cadaver gloves on here, Drancer. Here we go. <laughs> See what happened to the Vancouver Canucks uh, this season. Boy, listen, we'll uh, we'll go reverse pyramid, wide brush, and then drill down as much as we can. Um, as you have a look back, I mean, Vancouver officially eliminated. As we have a look back on the season that was, and we went through a, a whole bunch, and, you know, the, the Vancouver Canucks essentially for this program and, and other programs to say nothing of, you know, Twitter feeds and, and podcasts. I mean, the Vancouver Canucks really gave us all a protein shake for everybody here um, in the media. But when you look back on the season that we just saw, what's going to be the first thing that comes to your mind? Yeah, and I think the way I'd sort of summarize it, to be totally honest with you, Jeff, is it felt this year like an organization that was in some ways in the team's way. You know, there were a lot of changes behind the scenes, and I don't just mean management, uh, Bruce Boudreaux's first, well, partial season, I guess his second partial season, but his first training camp. Uh, but but it was it was sort of the littler stuff that, that sort of stands out to me. You know, I think about the the dynamic of having JT Miller signed and Bo Horvat not coming into the season and, and the, and the mm-hmm. tension that inevitably created. I, I think about coming into the season with a head coach who clearly was not on the same page as the management team. Um, and, and probably fair to say was undermined 
uh, publicly and privately over the course of the first half of the season. Um, you know, I think about the Tanner Pearson uh, injury issues, um, and and that's a evolving situation, one that you know hopefully. Uh, well, first of all, hopefully he's able to return, but I suspect that that story is not done playing out uh, in any event. Um, you know, I, I really sort of put all of that together and see a team that, you know, was far better than the results in terms of their true talent level. And yet there was something off right from the hop. And yeah, the goaltending issues, especially after Thatcher Demko got hurt, um, crushed this team. The, the penalty kill, I mean, you can talk about all the hockey stuff, the structure or lack thereof until Rick Tockett took over um, until you're blue in the face. But fundamentally, something felt off top down uh, with this organization right from training camp and permeated into, you know, a third consecutive deeply disappointing season with a core group of players that, you know, I think everyone likes and yet it hasn't really worked. That's a really interesting... I agree with you. Like, it's it's not as if this team was bad and everybody was unlikable. Like, I know there are players that are more likable than others, but sure. by and large, like, this is isn't a team that you look at and you say, "Ugh, like who's to, who's to even like here?" I mean, whether no. it's you know Elias Pettersson, like completely likable. Whether it's Quinn, it can go right down the list. Of like, there are a lot of players here that it's not as if like. They, they, you know, they were sour losers or bad for the city or didn't want them wearing the crest. Like, there's there's not really a whole lot of that to talk about. I mean, you know, mind you, there are some players that are more, again, like I mentioned, more popular than others. But it's not as if this is a repulsive team, just a team that didn't have results. Yeah, I mean, it's just a team that at this point, you know, and, and really this core group, like Pedersen, Hughes, Miller, I mean, I know they jettisoned Horvat, but we're in year four where, where all of these guys have been on the team. And with the exception of that bubble run, you know, it's been three consecutive years of, you know, extreme disappointment. And, and we're not talking, uh, you know, m- middle of the road, like, Oh, they just fell short sort of disappointment. Like they were seventh in the all Canadian, in the North division, right. In the, uh, in the pandemic yeah. abbreviated season, uh, they haven't gotten out of the month of November with a realistic playoff shot. Uh, they haven't gotten out of the first month of the season with a realistic playoff shot because I suppose that 2021 season started in January, yeah. um, you know, since 2019. And yet here we are. The organization fully intends to make the playoffs again next season. They've committed uh, a lot of cap space to um, this group, like to winning now. You know, I mean, we're talking about over $30 million committed by this new management group because you can talk about what was inherited. You can talk about Oliver Ekman, Larson, Tyler Myers, uh, Connor Garland, but you know, between Besser, Mikheyev, Miller, Hironik, Beauvillier, um, you know, this this management group itself has committed thirty million, uh, it, chasing you know a competitive season next year, and and I think the pressure has to be high on this organization to actually deliver, especially in the first eight weeks of, of next season, um, you know, a product that actually wins games, that's actually credible. Uh, it's going to be a tall order though, mm-hmm. especially in you know, a Pacific division that I know people look at and think is soft, but is anyone going to be surprised by a flames bounce back? Is anyone going to be surprised if the Kraken can maintain? If, is anyone going to be surprised if Edmonton and Vegas remains in a totally different weight class? Uh, it, it's a tall order. Yep. So it's going to be fascinating to see how they navigate all of it this summer, uh, given the disappointment that's, you know, recurred this year. 
How much how much do you look at what happened to Vancouver this year and say maybe this was bound to happen? You know, we talk so much of, you know, right now, uh, you know, in in our in our culture, there seems to be this sort of lack of appreciation for experience. Um, mm. But, you know, as we're learning, there's a there's a real value there. How much do you look at Vancouver and the Canucks and say, well, listen, like Jim Rutherford has been around as, as long as either as a, as, a, as a player or a manager has been around as long as all of us have been watching hockey games. But everyone around him, like everyone that he placed there was inexperienced. I don't know if that is yeah. by design. So he would be, you know, have the ultimate hammer or it's just by coincidence. But how much do you look at this season and say, well, hang on. Why should we have expected more? There was Hall of Famer Jim Rutherford and a bunch of people who were new on the beat at their position. I think it's a really interesting point. And, you know, one thing I'd point out, for example, is one thing that has stood out as successful, functional, uh, all season long within, you know, Vancouver's hockey operations umbrella has been the American League team, right? The, the Abbotsford Canucks, they've been counted on heavily as injuries have mounted over the course of the season. Uh, the Canucks have received really good performances from everybody from Sheldon Dries to Christian Willannon to Noah Juleson. I mean, go down the list. A variety of depth players have come up and immediately played well. Uh, the player development side has looked good. And that's all under the auspices of Ryan Johnson, who's like the one holdover, right? The only bit of organizational continuity yeah. that they had uh, and and at least within that sort of portfolio, things were smooth uh, elsewhere, right? Uh, anything but. And and I do think that sort of poses some difficult questions about the nature of the changes that were made, you know, last December, uh, why the organization cut it to the bone so significantly in, in just about every facet of their operation. And, you know, I, I think understanding that while – on the other side of the pandemic, like while this team, while this core group has been around for several years, um, behind the scenes, right on the other side of the pandemic, this connects organizations like a startup. They're, they're, it's not even just the hockey operation side; it's the business operation side too, right? There's not been a, a ton of continuity in terms of uh, executive leadership, the faces around the rink, and you know, I think that sort of dovetails nicely too with the point I was making about a, an organization that at some time at some points this season felt like it was in it's in the hockey team's way uh and and it's, i think that sort of raises the stakes too to what comes next i mean there's a lot of um rumors percolating the club telling season ticket holders about plans there's been blue seats uh, in the lower bowl like there's there's very likely some <laughs> yeah. significant renovations coming at rogers arena in terms of uh what the seats look like in terms of various club areas in terms of a new jumbotron on and on down the list. And, you know, this is one where, like, just to give you another example, like last summer they renovated the locker rooms significantly and there were overruns in terms of the timeline to complete those renovations. And as a result, the Canucks were out practicing at the University of British Columbia uh, all through preseason and really right up from right after training camp. And they'd practice right after the uh, UBC women's team would uh, cut up the ice and like you could hear players and coaches complaining during practice sessions about the quality of the ice. Like if you're, if you're launching more renovations, more CapEx at Rogers arena, like you, you better make sure you better make sure that it's all ready. You better you better have a more functional, straightforward hockey focused season uh, next year, because this club can't afford to be on the back foot in any manner uh, in the wake of the three seasons that have transpired to this point 
and the way the club has uh, positioned itself vis-a-vis not tanking, right? Uh, winning games down the stretch, yeah. uh, trading draft picks for win-now pieces uh, going into next season. So what, what then, as far as personnel goes, do you think are the biggest, or what is the biggest decision or the, 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 the biggest yeah. issue in the offseason? Is it the impending Elias Pettersson contract? Is this the, do we still have a window to move JT Miller? Is it, where is Brock Besser going to go? Is it, what happens with Thatcher Demko? What is it for Vancouver? Like, what would be, like, what's the first folder that's, uh, that Alvin and Rutherford grab here in the offseason? Yeah, I mean, at some point later this week, Elias Pettersson's going to become the sixth player in franchise history to hit 100 points in a single season, joining, you know, McGilney, Burray, Naslin, Sadin Sadin. Um, decent company, that. And so I, I think you have to start there. You have to start there with the extension, which he becomes eligible to sign on July 1. For me, that's sort of 1A, mostly out of respect for just how high a level of play Patterson has hit, uh, just what he's done over the course of the season. But 1B, and, and not, not as far behind as it probably should be, is the cap space issue, for me anyway. You know, this is the team with the most salary cap space committed for next season ahead of the Tampa Bay Lightning, right? I mean, it, it makes no sense for a perennial non-playoff team, and I think it's fair to call them that, um, to have this many this much cap space committed going into an off season. And so, you know, as much as we'd like to, in this market anyway, discuss like upgrading the third line center or adding size and speed in the bottom six, or boy, it would be great if they could add another top four defenseman or uh, a backup goalie would sure look good behind Thatcher Demko. Um, step one is moving money. And, and for me, the JT Miller question, like all of this fits within this rubric of, how do the Canucks clear space in another offseason that looks like it's going to be gummed up by, by the continuance of the flat cap? Um, you know, moving, moving expensive wingers, for example, this summer feels like it's going to be a heavy lift, not just for the Canucks, but for 31 other NHL general That's managers hard. too. And so, yeah. and yet that feels like it's going to be a decisive factor, like the thing that shapes this offseason and, and as a result, this, teams playoff chances more than anything else is going to be what they do to clear money. Um, because even if Pearson ends up on LTI for the, for all of next season, which, you know, I hope doesn't happen. Even if T- uh, Tucker Pullman does, um, you know, this club's looking at probably about 5 million ish in cap space. And that's with Ethan bear and Niels Hoaglander to resign his RFAs and uh, an awful lot of work to do up and down the lineup. If they're going to be a credible contender for a playoff spot next year. That's a lot of work. Um, Thomas, that is a, <laughs> just, and it, it's too, like whenever you, whenever you park yourself uh, on the, on the roster too, and, and you look on the horizon and say, okay, well, you know what? Once the bonus is paid, maybe they can do something with Tyler Myers and that's a tidy little bit of work, but still like, you're right. Like there's still heavy lifts here. There's still heavy yeah, well, lifts here that they have to, that they have to make before they move forward. Well, and even the Myers one, right? Like, it's not a July one bonus; it's a late summer bonus, right? And yeah. uh, he's got a he's got a limited no trade clause. So there there's certain teams that he can say, "I don't want to go to." And, and this is a guy who summers in British Columbia, right? A family guy. Um, you know, I, I don't know that you're getting a lot of help there necessarily from a player whose family is settled and who 
makes their offseason home in British Columbia. And that's not to criticize him. That's to, he's earned that right. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I'm just, I'm just sort of pointing out that even, even the one that looks simple or, or the most straightforward, right? Who doesn't want a big right-handed defenseman with a ton of playoff experience, right? Like that for $1 million once his bonus is paid, that, that feels like the move that should be straightforward. And even that one is deliriously complicated. And that's before you move down the list to Garland, Besser, and then whatever, uh, transpires with JT Miller. I, really quick on the Miller point, I just think the organization needs to clarify things at, at, at this juncture. You know, I think we all sort of expect them to at least gauge their options in the lead up to July 1, after which he uh, his contract kicks in and he'll have a full no move clause, especially after what transpired around the deadline. Um, but I, I just think some clarification is essential. I, I don't think you want to go into the season, and, and again, I'm not criticizing either player, I don't think either of them handled it poorly. But we all know what happens to team dynamics when you come into, for example, this season with JT Miller extended and Bo Horvat not. It's a distraction. It's always going to be a distraction in in any professional locker room when when you structure things that way. I I just, the organization, it feels to me like they can't afford to be seen so publicly dangling, you know, the player who has the most security in this organization ahead of the draft and then just bring it all back and be like, well, no, we really like him. Uh, it, it just feels too convoluted to approach it that way. I think, I think you know, mo- moving decisively one way or the other, and if you're not going to trade him, if he is part of this team's solution in the organization's opinion, and I definitely think he's impressed Rick Tockett over the course of the Tockett's first 29 games, I think a declarative statement yep. that, like, this is it, I think that would help quiet things down, and, and I think it would help the club position itself well you know, from an intangible standpoint going into next season. Uh, I'm bang on with you about JT Miller and Rick Tockett. Uh, Tockett takes over. The first thing I thought of was like, oof, that is a Tockett guy. Regardless of, I know all the noise around him and everything and all the history, but he did seem and still does seem like a Tockett guy. We're uh, we're up against the clock. Uh, Drancer, always a pleasure, man. You'd be well. Thanks, buddy. Man, you're so good. You're so good. Thanks so much for doing this. Uh, thanks for having me, Jeff. Be well. Bye. Thomas Trance uh, from Canucks Talk and The Athletic. Uh, we come back with Elliot Friedman from Hockey Night in Canada and 32 Thoughts, a random player of the day, and Kevin Kurz on the Islanders page. Keep it here. Diving deep into Leafs, Raptors, Jays, and NFL, the J.D. Bunkins Podcast. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Welcome back to the program. Welcome to Hour 2. Elliot Friedman coming up here in a couple of moments uh, in advance of tonight's Maple Leafs-Columbus Blue Jackets game, which I believe Elliot is working. Uh, Kevin Kurtz coming up at the bottom of the hour. Uh, Allender's not involved tonight, but very much have an eyeball on things, namely the Buffalo Sabres, um, as they face off against the Florida Panthers. And also, because today is a delicious 11-game night, uh, the Pittsburgh Penguins facing off against the new Jersey Devils. Uh, random player of the daytime. Matty Marchese, you return. Who's up for random player? This guy is a former collegiate player from Harvard University, so he's obviously a smart guy. Uh, That would be Neil Sheehy, and this one's submitted by Bernie Schulmeister. Okay, so first of all, you blew it. What did I blow? Well, the obvious one would have been Oliver Crook-Haw. (laughs) 
should have been the random player of the day. But no, you don't want to go for the obvious joke. You just went to, according uh, I'm to script. Not smart enough for that. Okay, so that's all right. Um, falling to new heights, rising to new depths. Welcome to the show. Uh, random player of the day, Neil Sheehy. So I, I always liked Neil Sheehy, but then again, I love the Battle of Alberta. And if you were alive for it and watch these games, some of which took four hours. Um, you love Neil Sheehy too, and you loved watching these games, whether you were an Edmonton fan or a, a Calgary Flames fan or just a fan of chaotic and often violent hockey. Uh, you got to know Neil Sheehy's name pretty well. Now, the Calgary Flames at that time, you know, had players that could compete with Edmonton, but if you were going to really compete with Edmonton, you needed players, and you didn't have you know, time for players to develop. He didn't have time to draft and, you know, let the green banana ripen and here we go, graduate to the NHL. So what the Calgary Flames did, and it was quite ingenious and, and, it, and it really worked and it helped them stay competitive with not only, we should mention, not only the Oilers, but the Winnipeg Jets. And just as an aside, I remember talking to Wayne Gretzky once about this and I said, you know, we always talk about you guys and the, and the Flames. What about the Jets? And he said, the only difference between us and the Jets... Now, I personally think this is a stretch, but here we go. So the only difference between the Oilers and the Jets, according to Gretzky, was the net minding. He said if the Winnipeg Jets had net minding, look out, it would have been a lot closer than it was. But nonetheless, getting back to the Calgary Flames at that time and Neil Sheehy. So what Calgary did was they went out, and we see this every year now, uh, but the Calgary Flames went out and signed a lot of older college free agents. And they brought in Jamie McCowan from Ohio State. They brought in... Joel Otto from Bemidji. They brought in Colin Patterson from Clarkson. They brought in Gino Cavallini from Bowling Green. And they brought in Neil Sheehy from Harvard. Six foot two, 220 pound right shot defenseman um, who was a shadow uh, and tried to live in the hip pocket every time the Calgary Flames and the Edmonton Oilers played. Now, he was the last player in the NHL to wear the number zero. Um, and he used to always sort of joke around and say, well, it's because of my Irish heritage and my Irish roots. Uh, I wear zero because it looks like my, uh, my name says, oh, she, he, and not just she, he, and he kind of gagged about that one. But the other one, like she, he's a funny guy. She, he, Matt, you'll like this one would always say, I wanted to figure out what number was the furthest from 99 that I was allowed to wear because when you look at my skill set, I was the furthest away from Wayne Gretzky of anyone in the NHL. So I went with zero. Uh, he was the last player to wear zero in the uh, NHL. Economics degree from Harvard. Uh, graduated law school as well. Um, became an agent, still an agent. His first client was Paul Ranheim. And here's some trivia for you, Maddie. Do you know who his agent was when he played in the NHL? Oh, man. I... I don't. Think, I have a feeling, think but eighties. Think eighties. Tick 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 uh, tick 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 no, tick. Brian I don't Burke. Have it. That's that was going to be my guess. To be honest with you, they should have said it then. Go with your gut. Uh, Trust your instincts, Maddie. You yeah. too has you hesitate too much. Here's a here's hang on. You want a little broadcast secret? This sure. has got Speak me loud. a lot of people in my chair a lot. Yeah. If you're not sure of something, say it loud. That's the only way you're going to get through this industry. So anyway, he was represented by Brian Burke when he played. Um, according to HockeyFights.com, he had 76 fights, three of which with Joe Koser, Wendell Clark, so the cousins, and the salty dog Al Tour. Uh, had three fights with all of those. Those are the players that he fought the most. 
Uh, as I mentioned, he's now an agent, represents, amongst other players, uh, Ryan Suter, Casey Middlestat, Anders Lee, and Nick Letty, random player of the day, number zero, Neil Sheehy. Anything to add to that one? Yeah, so um, he's the only skater to ever wear the number zero, but he was not the first NHLer to wear that number. Uh, do you know who the first is? And there's only been three all time. Uh, uh, well, John Davidson wore double zero with the Rangers. Uh, Paul Bebo would have worn zero as a netminder mm-hmm. with there's the one, Montreal Canadiens. Frank Frank Selke, by the way, was the um, was the father-in-law there. Can I pause? Can I pause on on him for a second? Can I pause on Bebo for sure. a second? Sure. Um, Scotty Bowman used to reference this, and he did this. And he's he's talked about doing this before, and he and he did it with the Pittsburgh Penguins with Wendell Young and Ken Reggett, uh, Paul Bebo and Burt Gardner, in 1941 when uh, Dick Irvin Senior was coaching the Montreal Canadiens, um, there was at least one game and it helped them win a Stanley Cup where he he changed netminders every seven minutes, and Bebo was one of the guys that he used. Reggett and Wendell Young did it in the 90s with the Pittsburgh Penguins, but the original was Dick Irvin Sr. using uh, Bebo and, and Burt Gardner. Uh, so who was the other zero? So John Davidson, Paul Bebo, and Neil Sheehy. I, no, but, uh, but I'm just talking one zero, not two, not two zeros, just one. Oh, just one? Yes. Ooh, I just know Bebo and Sheehy. Who, who are the other, who's the other one? Andy Aikenhead in 1934 was the first player, first NHLer to wear the number zero, wow. the goaltender. I love it. I love it. Bring in the heats. Um, well, there you go. That's a uh, random player of the day, Neil Sheehy. Uh, if you want to submit your own random player of the day, JM show at sportsnet.ca. Uh, who sent that one along again? Maddie, real quick before we get to Elliot. I want to give one, a thank you. Bernie Schulmeister. boy. Thank you so much, sir. Thanks so much for, uh, for sending that along. The best Blue Jays show out there, period. Blair and Barker. Be sure to subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. You know, as it says on your rearview mirror, objects may be closer than they appear. If you're the New York Islanders, that includes the Pittsburgh Penguins, the Florida Panthers, and dare I say, the Buffalo Sabres, perhaps, as well. Teams vying for wild card spots, one held by the New York Islanders, but they only have a checks notes. Scant four games remaining, and as they sit idle tonight, they watch the Pens play, they watch the Panthers, and they watch the Buffalo Sabres. Kevin Kurz joins me now for comments on uh, on the Islanders and, and what's in store. Kevin, how are you today? Good, Jeff. How you doing? Uh, I'm good. Um, so like many of us, I thought that the Islanders were home and cooled out. Put your feet up. Here we go. I know we have some games <laughs> on the horizon here, but essentially the Islanders are going to be cool. We're just battling to see who gets the second wild card spot. And then Tampa happened and then Carolina happened. And now we have question marks, uh, and the Islanders are watching. I think it's just gotta be such an awful feeling watching other teams play uh, that hold your fates. Uh, what's happened here with the, with the New York Islanders? I mean, obviously they got blanked by Tampa and then, you know, got shaded by the Carolina Hurricanes 2-1, to one, but what's happened here to the Islanders? 
Yeah, no, you, you look at that weekend, and, and if it was a few months ago, you would think, well, there's not all that much shame in losing in Tampa and in Carolina back-to-back. I mean, those are two pretty good teams, and particularly the Lightning, of course, have, yep. have given the Islanders headaches. But um, just two goals on a three-game road trip, and they won one of them uh, against Washington in a shootout, their, their first win in six tries in a shootout. Um, so the offense has dried up, and, and really the, the the biggest problem right now is is the power play, and it's been a problem since Matthew Barzell got hurt on February 18th in Boston. It, it's four for 45 over the last 19 games, which is last in the league over that span. And you know this is obviously not a forward group that's going to match up skill wise with other teams in the league, but they've got to be better than that. And that's the biggest issue right now, like I said, and and going to practice today, they mixed up both units. I don't know which one's the top unit. I don't know which one's second unit. I guess we'll have to find out uh, when they play on Thursday, but that's the biggest issue right now. That's what they've got to get figured out because they're certainly going to need probably one or two big power play goals over these final four games. Yeah. What, what's at stake here? You know, sometimes when a team is this close, you wonder, okay, if they don't make it in, you know, what are the repercussions in the off season? And I kind of look at the Islanders roster and I say, probably nothing. But is there something that I'm missing here? Like if, if the Islanders ultimately miss and, you know, they have the four games and everyone's got games in hand around them, but if ultimately they miss, what are the consequences? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I I don't know how much they can do. There's not going to be a whole lot of roster flexibility this summer, and I wouldn't think there's going to be all that much movement. Now, you know, we we could see like a Josh Bailey buyout to free up some space. Um, I I would think in a perfect world they'd like to re-sign guys like Hudson Fashing and Pierre Engvall because both those guys have been pretty good depth players. But um, there isn't much money coming off the books this summer other than Semyon Barlamov. Uh, I'm 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 interested in Engvall. I'm glad you brought up his name because you know the other team, and th- there must have been others as well. But the, the the one team it sounds like who at various times this year um, were in, at least interested in Pierre Engvall were the Dallas Stars. Um, the Islanders end up getting him. I know that he would drive Leafs fans to frustration. Uh, the skill set is there, the size, all of it, um, and just wasn't able to to finish essentially. Um, and sometimes when you're that big, you know, hockey fans expect you to play a certain way, and that's just not Pierre Engvall's game. But why do you think, you know, so you're on a really good line with Nelson and Paul Mary, why do you think it's worked with the Islanders where it didn't work with the Maple Leafs? Well, he's certainly getting an opportunity, like you said. I mean, he's playing with Brock Nelson and Kyle Palmieri. That's a top six role. That's um, a place where, he, you know, he, he's going to get his chances. And uh, it, it's, he's, he's, he almost looks like Brock Nelson out there because he, he has that same type of stride. They're both really <laughs> tall guys. Um, yeah. Brock's got a little bit better shot. Um, but Engvall, I think, may have some a little bit more straight-ahead speed. Um, that's helped, and uh, he hasn't really gotten all that much power play time, but I think he was their best, really maybe their only player that could say he had two good games in Tampa and in Carolina over the weekend. Um, I think it's five goals, three assists in his last 11 games now, which is which is a pretty good output for a guy like him. Um, and, you know, it took some time to get going. And the, the, first, the first week he was here, it was uh, – I, I want to say he made a mistake in the second period and he basically didn't play for the final 
um, final half of the game. And then there was another game where he didn't play for the final 15 minutes. So it took a little bit of time, I think, for him to earn Lane, earn Lane Lambert's trust. But um, he's been good. You know, he's showing that speed. He's 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 finding uh, room to get away his shot. Um, I think he's got a good shot from what I've seen anyway. And, um, yeah, I think it's just about opportunity because he really has been pretty much primarily in the top six. And, and that has been the Islanders' most consistent mm-hmm. line since – Oh, especially in the last three weeks, is, is Palmieri, Engvall, and and Nelson. They're 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 pretty good on one end. I mean, not so much lately because nobody's scoring, but they've been responsible defensively too. I don't think I don't think they've been out there for more than one or two five on five goals since they've been together. Um, I, I want to ask you about, about Matthew Barzal here, um, but I want to couch it in one very specific way. Um, when I think of Lou Lamarillo historically, going back to the the Devils days, coming in from uh, from Providence, where he was a Friar. Um, he's always been very selective, let's just say, to be generous about what type of information is available about his teams. And I always think of you know, a great World War II quote from Winston Churchill, who, uh, who once said, at wartime, truth is so precious uh, that she must be attended to by a bodyguard of lies. Um, <laughs> as best you can glean, what is happening with Matthew Barzal? Well, he skated today, we're told, but he was not a part of the team practice. So that, to me, says that there's no sort of imminent return here. Um, Interestingly, Lou did say over the weekend that Barzell might have been a little bit behind the original timeline that they figured he would be on when he got hurt. Um, You know, to me, until a guy's out there practicing with his team and we can see him, uh, you know, there's there's no yeah. sort of imminent return here. I mean, I, I, it, it, if he skated today, I mean, it was before anybody in the media got there, right? I mean, he could have been out there at 830 for all I know. We were just told that he did skate today. He did skate on his own. There's a week left in the season here. The Islanders are, they might even be the first team to finish up. The, the, their last game is on Wednesday the 12th. So that's only a week away. I have a hard time yep. seeing Barzell play in any of these four games, but he's not even practicing with the team yet. So, We'll see if he progresses. We'll see if we see him. I guess it's the best way to put it. We haven't seen him yet. So, uh, yeah. you know, I, I I think they're obviously hopeful, and it's a step in the right direction that he's back on the ice. But who knows what that means because we don't know what it is. You know, we can speculate that maybe it's a knee injury. Um, but, again, that's just speculation. So in, until we see him and until we – uh, can get a sense of how he can move out there and what he's able to do, uh, then I'm not going to count on his, his return at all. And that, you know, that gets back into the power play problems. He, he's the he's the biggest reason their power play struggle because it basically is runs through him. And when they brought in Bo, Bo yeah. Horvat, I think it was they were six for seventeen over the five or six games or whatever it was the small sample size they played together. But it just looked a whole a whole lot better, and it was because the chemistry of those two seemed to be developing pretty quickly. Um, so the next game is the sixth, um, Thursday against the Tampa Bay Lightning. Um, that's a tough out. We saw that on the weekend. Um, but then after that, like the, the final three games, again, who knows, you know, when teams play loose, but you know, these, these are all winnable games for the New York Islanders, like the Philadelphia Flyers, the Washington Capitals, the Montreal Canadiens. Like when you look at the strength of schedule, I know they only have the four games remaining and, you know, sorry, one of them is, is against the murderer's row that is Tampa, but it's not as if they look at the schedule and saying, man, we're starched here. These are really tough games with all due respect to Philadelphia, Washington and Montreal. It's not like they're yeah. playing, you know, 
Vegas and the Boston Bruins and, you know, the Carolina Hurricanes here. You know, it's Philadelphia, Washington, and, and Montreal. Do you have a thought on the schedule and how kind it can be here to the Islanders down the stretch? Well, three of the four are at home, so I think that's important. And even Tampa, you know, the Lightning are playing the Rangers tomorrow night. So do they go to Vasilevsky and then yep. maybe go to Brian Elliott uh, on Thursday? That could help them a little bit because the, the Islanders will be rested. They're, 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 they played on Sunday, and then they're not going to play until Thursday. You know, a rare three-day break here. Um, so you would think they'll be coming out pretty hard in, in that one. And then, yeah, the, I mean, the Flyers, Caps, and Canadians, those are those are three games they should all win. I, I think Pittsburgh's schedule's pretty easy in the final three, too, right? Correct me if I'm wrong. It's like Detroit, Columbus, and somebody else, I think. So I don't know if that's going to help. They have uh, Detroit, uh, Detroit, Detroit, yeah, Detroit, Chicago, Columbus. Yeah. And, and you know, I, I think what's going to help the Islanders is I would anticipate – Ilya Sorokin is going to play in all four of these games. None of them are back-to-back. It, it's game and a day off over these final four. So that should help them ride their, their single best player here. Um, and, and there's no reason mm-hmm. for me to believe that Sorokin's suddenly going to start allowing in a bunch of goals. So, um, you know, the keys are the power play to me. Um, playing at home is going to help them. And you'd think this is a veteran team that, that knows how to turn it up when the games are the most important. And I thought we saw that at times throughout the few weeks before this most recent road trip. You know, we saw against Toronto and they, they beat them 7-2. to two And they beat some good teams in there too. You know, Buffalo came in once and, and they beat them the first time. Um, so, you know, they took care of business on a California road trip against the Ducks and the Sharks. I you, you keep thinking that, that the veteran nature of this team is going to know when to turn it up. And I guess we'll find out here whether that's truly the case because now, you know, there's no more time to waste here. All right, quick 60 seconds if you have it for me. Zach Parisi has scored 21 goals for the New York Islanders. Again, I repeat, Zach Parisi has scored 21 goals <laughs> for the New York Islanders, uh, just as Kevin Kerr's predicted, right? Yeah, right. Well, it's funny you say that, though, because I, I went over to Zach today and I said, listen, I'm not going to turn the tape recorder on or anything. I just want to make sure he's going to turn 39 this summer. Do you want to keep playing after this season? And because him and I talked about that before, he you know, I, I came from San Jose where yeah. I covered Patrick and Marlowe and Joe Thornton. And, and um, he said he does want to keep playing next season. And then I mentioned I think I mentioned Patty Marlowe. He's like, well, I don't know if I want to go that long. <laughs> But he wants to go next season, and <laughs> I think there's absolutely, you know, if you're if you're Lou Lamorello, I mean, how do you not give him that 1.5 million dollars again to 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 come back for for one more year? I would imagine he's been uh, he like we always talk about the comeback players of the year, and listen, Carlson, Eric Carlson may win the Norris Trophy, and he's got the comeback player if they had that award wrapped up. But you, you we, we should. Maybe Jake DeBrus could be in that conversation too. Throw Zach Parisi in that conversation because I don't think anyone thought that we'd be talking on you know April the fourth and Zach Parisi has got a twenty one underneath G on his stat sheet. But nonetheless, <laughs> there it is. Um, Kevin, thanks as always for sharing your expertise. You're so good at this. Um, you cover the Islanders great. Uh, a fascinating team. I know trying to get information out of that that information out of the organization is challenging. So uh, bravo because <laughs> yeah. you're you're able to do it. Thanks so much for doing this. Anytime, Jeff. Thanks a lot.
Kevin Kurz uh, covers the New York Islanders, uh, one of the more challenging teams uh, to cover just because, you know, the reputation of Lou Lamarillo is well told and well earned. Kevin Kurz from the uh, the Athletic. It, it is an interesting situation there because uh, there is the Tampa game and then three winnable ones. But again, I cannot stress again how huge tonight's Buffalo-Florida matchup is. And if you're an Islanders fan, probably tonight, as one person texted me, hang on, let me grab this for you, it'll probably make you laugh, as one person who is a a noted Islanders fan texted me this morning, do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do. Devin Levi can become an Islanders legend today. I love Islanders fans. Uh, 11 games on the go around the NHL this evening, and there are some doozies. There was the Buffalo-Florida Panther game. Like I know I've gone on a lot about this one. That's one of the 7 o'clock starts. Uh, park it for that one on uh, on our network on Sportsnet West and Pacific. We have the Pittsburgh Penguins and the New Jersey Devils. Uh, obvious storylines there. The Penguins looking to hold on to a wild card spot, and the Devils looking to kind of turn things around after a little bit of a speed wobble and uh, still look north to the Carolina Hurricanes. Um, also on the network a little bit later on, the Chicago Blackhawks and the Calgary Flames at 9 Eastern, Sportsnet 360. If you want to read in between the lines of hearing Daryl Sutter today, it sounds like Markstrom's going back-to-back. Tonight against the Chicago Blackhawks, tomorrow against the Winnipeg Jets. He has done it before. The last time uh, was spectacular uh, against the Minnesota Wild. Uh, we'll see what happens with Jacob Markstrom uh, and the Calgary Flames tonight as the, the margin for error on a lot of these teams really tiny. Right, like if you're the Calgary Flames, you don't want to. Con- you don't have time to be tired, and this is one of those weeks where you could be tired. We always look at the four-game weeks uh, during the season, and at this point, right now, you can be fatigued. You've already played a lot of hockey, uh, but right now, the Calgary Flames don't have the luxury of being tired, coming off a come come from behind win against the Anaheim Ducks on Sunday. Tonight, they'll face off against the Hawks tomorrow. The Winnipeg Jets Saturday, they'll face off against the Vancouver Canucks on Hockey Night in Canada. It is a big week for Calgary. It is a big week for Winnipeg as well. Uh, Flames looking to gain some ground here. Seattle Kraken face off against the Vancouver Canucks. Jared McCann and his 37 goals uh, and the Seattle Kraken face off against the the Vancouver Canucks. Watch that one, 10 o'clock Eastern on Sportsnet Pacific, 7 o'clock local. And then we have one that has the potential just to be nasty. You know, as the, the Vegas Golden Knights, and again, a big win last night for them over Minnesota, continue to pull away. Top team in the conference, uh, top team in the division. You know, we're looking for that Oilers, Los Angeles Kings first round matchup, something that's been spicy going back to the Wayne Gretzky trade days. I don't want to say this is going to be a message sending game, but all I'm saying is the potential for it to happen is clearly there between two teams who don't really see eye to eye and don't get along. You know, in hour one, we were talking about hockey hatred with Elliot Friedman. It clearly exists between the Los Angeles Kings and the Edmonton Oilers. That one could be spicy. Uh, Big thank you to everyone who was part of the show today. Kevin Kurz, here we go with the credits. Kevin Kurz from The Athletic. Elliot Friedman from Hockey Night. Thomas Drantz uh, from Canucks Talk in The Athletic. Um, And also thanks to Bernie Schulmeister for submitting Neil Sheehy as today's random player of the day. General Nick Lance Kennedy, Matt Marchese, thank you, thank you, thank you. 
Enjoy the rest of your day. Enjoy the games. Back tomorrow, noon Eastern, for the Merrick Show.